All right, well, what I will do here is begin with prayer, and then I have some special thing we're going to look at, and then we'll go into Acts and then back into Luke. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you that the truth of the gospel has been evidenced by what's happened in history, and we know that you're raised and ascended to heaven. Thank you, Lord. And we pray that we can understand better what's revealed in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, two people asked me the same question Friday night, so I decided to get the answer. Evidently, there was a preacher who said that in, because the linen headcloth was folded, that was done so that we'd believe in the return of Christ or something like that. And I didn't think that was right, so I went to look it up. Not that Christ isn't returning, but I don't think that's John's point. So let's, this won't take long. I'm going to show you the passage, and that way we'll be doing something uh, about that, and Eric will be preaching on the resurrection. Now, the linen, what, what this is, is examining the claim that the folded linen cloth means the return of Christ or something like that. But the only thing that matters is what John meant because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, not the preacher who's got a clever idea. Let's see here. John 20. I'll start reading with verse 1. John 20, starting with verse 1, and then I got a slide starting with verse 4. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. By the way, John, in humility, would call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, giving emphasis to Jesus and his love rather than to himself. Okay. And then, and said to them, okay, so we have Peter and John, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So on the table, this is John 20 and verse 2 was why is the body missing They've taken him away. And this is true elsewhere. Was the body stolen or did somebody put the body somewhere else? Why is the tomb empty? That's the question we're, we're trying to answer here. So verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. Now we get to the verse I have on the PowerPoint. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. So John got there first. And stooping and looking in, here's what he saw. He saw the linen wrappings lying, lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. So we know that the tomb's empty and we know that the strips of linen around the body and the headcloth are lying there. There's no body, the wrappings are there. We know that much, right? Now, what else do we find out here? Verses seven and eight, this is what's at, at issue. And the face, faith, face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. But notice what it says here in verse 8. So the other disciple, which we know is John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered. Notice what it says here. 
He saw and believed. So the, I, I did a little uh, search of the believed and believe in John. It's thematic, obviously. These things are written that you may believe. So what did he believe? He believed in Christ. And frankly, what he saw would convince anybody that this wasn't a grave robbery. If somebody wanted to get the body out of there for whatever reason, they're not going to leave an orderly scene. Robbers don't leave order behind. Okay? They just don't. They want to get whatever it is they want to get, and they leave chaos behind. So seeing the linen um, wrappings and this orderly scene of the rolled-up head covering uh, caused John to believe. Now, if you go further on in John 20, uh, we see that's the point. Now, if you, want, if you have your Bible open, John 20, 25, uh, and then 29 and 31. I'll just cite a few verses because we want to get to Acts. John 20, 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, this is Thomas, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So an issue again in John 20 is believing, right? Believing. And um, verse 28, so then he does see, he does believe and say, my Lord and my God. Then, going on, uh, verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. So the point is to believe on Christ based on the evidence. I'll get to you after one more verse. Verse 31, John 20. But these have been written. Many other things could have been written, but these have been written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So why the evidence? So that you may believe in Christ. Okay. Uh, I'm one of the ones. You're that brought, one of the ones, yeah, right? I'm, I'm one of the ones. And, and apparently somebody else brought this to, to Bob as well. But the only pushback that I would have on that, Bob, is why in John's writings in verse 6, when he entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, why, didn't, why doesn't the sentence just say he saw, the linen, he saw the linen wrappings and the face cloth lying there? Why does John go on to emphasize the fact that the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself? Why did John go to the extra effort of writing and putting that in rather than just lumping it in with the linens. Because that was, in his mind, proof that this wasn't a grave robbery. That's what's on the issue, what's on the table. Okay, go back. John's one is telling us this. Look at verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. So she's assuming he's, there's a dead body that was taken. But the fact that this was an orderly scene caused John to believe it wasn't a grave robbery. Because robbers don't leave an orderly scene behind. Uh, uh, one more time, just just to... Okay. The linens wrappings were just lying there. That was disorderly. The face cloth in itself was orderly. That's not, again, that's just a detail, but it's not. Okay. It's, remember, those wrappings would have been, 
there were spices there who knows what state the body was in but the point was it wasn't a grave robbery the only thing that matters is what is John's point now if you want to go to other gospels still it was an issue whether there was a grave robbery or not the soldiers knew there wasn't they saw more than almost anybody but they were willing to take money to say it was a grave robbery. Can you imagine the hardness of heart that you actually know that the claims of Christ are true, but you'd rather have money? That's pretty bad. It's Friday night, I talked about the two thieves on the cross. One was mocking Jesus as he's dying. The other started that way, but eventually repented. Because frankly, how long, even if you live, how long are you going to live on this earth? Not Not very long, no. And the older you get, the more you know it's not very long. But if you have eternal life, you're with Christ. Okay, Dan. I was just wondering, Bob, when when you said they believed at that point. Well, John did. Right. I'm just wondering, like, with, uh, you know, when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ and... Jesus commended him for that. What, so you're saying this is a different, this is, what kind of, what's the difference between the two? Did the, did the disciples well, not? Well, Peter had, he made the confession, but then ended up denying the Lord after that. And he faltered. He said the right thing, but it had to be eventually confirmed. But what we see in the narrative of the resurrection is that these were people convinced there was going to be one and they just saw what they wanted to see because that's another theory of the critics Okay, people believe lots of things because they want to believe it so badly and uh, so it's sort of an emotional or mental phenomena where this is what they want to believe but that's not what the Bible tells us these were people who had run away in fear, depending on which gospel narrative we want to see emphasized. They had a hard time believing. Thomas wouldn't believe until he saw the wounds. John comes to believe when he sees this folded linen cloth that it wasn't a grave robbery. And these are people that wanted to believe but it gave up. We thought he was going to be the one who saved Israel. But what convinced them wasn't their mental state, but the facts. They became believers because the facts corrected what they thought. Mary thought somebody took the body away. That's the point. Does that make sense? Can we go to Acts? All right. I have permission to go to Acts. I was going to anyhow. All right, here we go. This is, and we covered some of this. Um, And last time I taught Sunday school, we were talking about how people respond in Luke X. This is just the key. How do you respond when the truth comes to you, when evidence is there, when the word is taught? uh, All of these things happen in Luke X. Some people are hardened and become angry Others respond with joy. And so you could say that one's response, whether you welcome the message or just become hardened in your uh, irrational unbelief, really is going to determine your eternal destiny. How do you respond? <clears throat> 
So it says in Acts 17, 11, the people here, now this is in Berea, were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica since they welcomed, and there's that word decamai, the message with eagerness, examined the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. So they were willing to look for biblical evidence for the claims that were being made by Paul that Christ was the Jewish Messiah. And they had the Old Testament scriptures. They had gone to the synagogue. Now, as I said before, open-minded here is certainly correct to translate noble-minded. The word in the Greek is eugenes. Um, Really, it means of high rank or genetically Eugenics would be where the word in English uh, eugenics comes from, similar. But what we th- how we use the word has nothing to prove what it meant back then. And here, it doesn't mean they were of noble birth, which would be a literal translation. But this was a nobility, as I said before, that came about from their willingness to learn and to examine evidence. So this is a great kind of nobility. You don't have to be born into it. You just have to seek the scriptures. You want to be nobility? Search the scriptures. Find out what God said. You're not in some caste like they have in India because, well, I was born in the wrong family, so I guess it's out of bounds for me to ever be a Christian. No. Search the scriptures. And they welcomed. And so that word, decomai, and I really went to some work with my Greek the other day, and I got a whole uh, folder in my hard drive of all the different permutations of the word decomai. And Luke X uses it more than any other part of the New Testament. And it's, it is used elsewhere, but it has to do with Um, not just, okay, I'll listen to what you say, that's good, but welcoming is more uh, personal and willing. This is good. If a friend shows up at your door, you welcome your friend because you're glad to see your friend. If the Jehovah Witnesses show up to your door, then you go, oh, do I want to debate them today? Or what do I going to do here? Or if somebody comes by wanting uh, to put new shingles on your roof. I'm here to give you a free inspection. Stay off my roof. Don't go near my roof. Don't touch my roof. Thou shalt go away. So you didn't welcome that person, did you? But you, but if you, so the welcoming, but here comes the message of the gospel of salvation, of eternal life, of Christ the Lord. Do you welcome it? Or you say, well, we've had uh, Moses in here in the synagogue for many, many centuries, and we're going to stick with that. But Paul is claiming, no, Moses actually wrote about Christ. Jesus said that. Moses wrote of me. They say, well, we have Moses the prophet. And he said, well, but Moses wrote of me. Listen to Jesus. Now, the word eagerness, notice here, they welcome the message with eagerness. Uh, Prothumia, thumia, some contexts would mean anger, but with strong desire. Brisk, in this, with the pros, uh, prefix, it means brisk and cheerful readiness. Well, let's see. Let's see. But a lot of people don't have that because they don't want to learn anything. My daughter was just telling about somebody who's in a deliverance ministry saying, I won't listen to anybody who hasn't had experience with this telling me there's anything wrong with it. She said, oh, well, I know somebody had experience who can tell you what's wrong with it. So she contacted the guy with the article I wrote about why I got out of it. 
So his response to that was, I just heard this story this morning, I won't read any article with that title. <laughs> the title was why I left deliverance ministry. So he won't listen to anybody who doesn't have experience, and he won't listen to anybody who does unless they already agree with him. That is not being a Brian. That's being deceived and wanting to stay in your deception for whatever reason. And it can't be a good reason. Because if you are sure that what you're doing is biblical, then you'd be willing to examine the evidence that maybe it isn't. In other words, you wouldn't just immediately harden yourself, so I don't even want to hear. You don't want to get into that state where you go, I don't want to hear. I already know what I have. I don't want to hear anything else. Because then, how are you going to be saved? How are you going to learn? How are you going to grow? How are you going to get, yeah, how are you going to get out of air? And if somebody's trying to convince you from Scripture, but they don't understand it correctly, well, then you can help them by giving them a more biblical argument. That's a good outcome, too. Oh, thank you. Now, I think I covered some of these things, but uh, we'll soon find out that the people in Thessalonica weren't satisfied with driving Paul out of there. They come down and start another problem in Perea. Not only do they not want to learn, they don't want anybody else to either. So then I have here Luke 9, 1 through 5. Let me quickly read that. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. As for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So if somebody is hard-hearted, they don't want to learn anything, they're belligerent, whatever they have, they want to keep it, give them evidence, they won't receive it, move on. God has people out there who are hungry to learn. Spend your time feeding the truth to people that love the truth. So, Acts 17, 12, 13, to make some progress here. Because I think I covered a lot of that last time. Therefore, many of them believed. So the people who searched the scriptures saw the evidence, and many of them believed. Along, these were Jews in the synagogue, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So we have people from all parts of society or life throughout Luke Acts who are saved. Lepers, outsiders, Gentiles, all different kind of people, plus some of noble birth in a physical sense, prominent people with money. Some of them believe. Some others had nothing believed. Jews believed. Gentiles believed. Men believed. Women believed. But conversely, rejection came from just about every source as well. Remember when 10 lepers were cleansed, only one of them wanted to give God glory? The rest were just happy. Okay, I'm done with that problem. See, Christianity isn't a problem-solving religion. It's about redemption, atonement, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. So what you're saying is that Christianity is not pragmatic. 
Right. It, it, it doesn't base on what works. It's based on what's true. See, when we're talking about something like forgiveness of sins, you don't need a pragmatic approach if you don't even think there is such a thing as sin. So you mean salvation is not for human problem solvers? Yeah. Well, it's not about solving problems now. It's about eternal life. It's not about your best life now? No. <laughs> and it's not also purpose-driven either, for that matter. You know what's interesting, Rich, about that? Thanks for bringing that up. Um, most of the books that are popular are based on the problem-solving model. Even Christian books. I just ordered two books about prayer. We're going to do some podcasts about that. Even that, even books about prayer are based on how to get what you want or solve your problem or do it right. It's all based on how-to or knowledge of secrets. Not the relationship with God. And, and frankly, I, I, I'm looking forward to doing this, pod, these podcasts. The assumption is that God the Father... Of course, they assume everybody who says they're a Christian is, which is a false assumption. Well, the, the reason your prayers aren't answered is you didn't do it right. Or you didn't do enough to prove to God that you're really serious. Or you don't know the secret. Or you're not pious like the guy that wrote the book. And this, is, this type of literature has been around for centuries. And people who are hyper-pious are extolled as the great people and the ordinary person who just says, God be merciful to be a sinner is some kind of a dumb bumpkin God will never hear. But if you can pray seven hours a day for 30 days straight, then God will hear you. Yeah, and I'm, we're going to do something about that. But that's on the surface of it. It's such a false picture of God. In the Lord's Prayer, didn't Jesus say, do you think you, don't be like the pagans, think they'll be heard for their many words? Well, you didn't say enough words, you didn't say them often enough. Or you didn't make the good confession. You said something negative in the process, so God will never answer your prayer. Boy, that one's popular. Don't ever say anything negative. Well, it's nice to be around people that talk positive, but it doesn't make you Christian. So God graces us with his salvation, and yet that's not enough. There's got to be something more, whether it be a second blessing, whether it be big houses, cars, boats, a great family. Or the other way, no it may be more self-sacrifice. Why do you think Roman Catholics over the centuries joined monasteries and, and go into these hyper-pious states, take oaths of silence, oaths of poverty? Because they're trying to prove that they're pious. Others prove their piety by their wealth. But none of that's the point. The point is eagerly welcoming the truth, searching the scriptures, believing what the Bible says about God as the Father and Jesus Christ as the prophet, priest, and king, who the one who ever lives to make intercession for us, and going to the throne of grace and trusting him. We get more emails from people who want to know because they see all these books and they think, God's never going to answer my prayer. Why? Because I didn't do it right, or I'm not like this guy that wrote the book. He figured out the secret, and he did all these things, and God gave him all of these glorious miracles and whatever they're claiming. Here's something you can use to help you. The truth isn't designed to make some person 
look more pious than ordinary Christians. It's not what's there. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians. I can't wait to preach through it. The whole point of 1 Corinthians was elitism. Some people thought they were better Christians because they had one gift or another. But if God delights to hear our prayers because he's loving, he's merciful, he's kind, he's gracious, and we know that we need him and we come to him through Christ, is he going to turn us away because we didn't do it right? I love the story of uh, prophets of Baal and Elijah. Did you see what the prophets of Baal had to go through because their God didn't care about them? Cut themselves and shout, and then Elijah's kind of mocking them. Well, I don't think he can hear. Shout louder. Uh, it's not how it is. It just, it just makes so much sense. Well, anyhow, I got some books coming to read about that that are the most popular ones right now. One was out there years and years ago, and now it's coming back. The new generation uh, has to get go through the same things. But the issue is, do we welcome and believe And God is delights to save sinners? He touches and heals people that have nothing going for them. Thief on the cross, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Believe there was a kingdom. He knew he deserved to die. So on. I talked about that Friday night. Uh, Luke 10, 3 through 12. I'll read that. Luke 10, 3 through 12. And it says here, remember Luke Acts, two volume work, same author, same themes. So I'm sending you out like lambs surrounded by wolves. Do not carry a money bag or traveler's bag, sandals, and great one on the road. And whenever you enter, I'll say, peace be on this house. If a peace-loving person is there, your peace will remain on him, but if not, he will return to you. What does that mean? What is peace in the Jewish sense? It's shalom. Shalom means well-being or even Messianic salvation through the Prince of Peace. If someone wants to have peace with God, they'll be willing to listen to the messengers who have the true gospel. Say it in that same house, eating and drinking, what they give you, the worker deserves his pay. Do not move around from house to house. Whenever you enter a house and the people welcome you, there's our word decomai, eat what is before you. Heal the sick in that town. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come upon you. But whenever you enter a town and the people do not welcome, there's our word again, go to the streets and say, even the dust of your town (coughs) even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come. I tell you, it would be more bearable for uh, more bearable on that day for Solomon for that town. So what's the point? Not that the kingdom's already here and manifested, but the presence of the king has been announced. The prince of peace. Are they going to listen to him? No, we don't care about that. We'll make a deal with Rome. We don't, we don't want your kind of peace. We want political peace now. We don't want to come to Christ. But there will be a future judgment. So you think Sodom is bad? would be worse for that town. How could it be worse than it was for Sodom? Well, because Sodom didn't actually see Christ himself and his messengers, his apostles. This is even greater. The more to whom much is given, much is required. They don't even want to hear from the very disciples of Jesus Christ himself, the king. So there'll be a judgment. So there's contrasting responses. Now, let's see what happens. Luke 10, 38 through 40. We see an interesting narrative. Now, why am I back and look? Because Luke acts to volume work. And we're looking about 
what it means to welcome the message in the messengers. Berea did, Thessalonica didn't. That's the difference. Now they went on their way. As they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed, there's our word, him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary, notice, I have it in red, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said. Now this is, by the way, see, listened, a cool in the Greek, hear, listen intently to hear, to know, to understand, to care about it. What's more important to you, your traditions or the truth of God? Most people, almost everyone, it's the traditions. The religion of their ancestors, their, what they believed, whatever, not what God actually said that might cause us to think differently. But she sat at the Lord's feet and listened. Now, Luke is telling us something here. Sitting at the Lord's feet was the posture of a disciple who was being trained. Okay? Sitting at the Lord's feet. Later, in Acts 22.3, Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in the city, educated, notice, at the feet of Gamaliel. So, Paul had been a disciple of a great Jewish teacher. And when he says sat at his feet, that, what that meant. You're a disciple of a great teacher in your learning. Imagine this. An ordinary Jewish woman is sitting at the feet of a great teacher. This, the irony is amazing. This is not who anybody would ever choose to be their disciple, a woman. It's not going to happen. Actually, conventions are being overturned here because now that the kingdom of God has come on the scene of history through the person of Christ, who died for sins, was raised on the third day, sent into heaven, and poured out the Spirit as prophesied in Joel, on the day of Pentecost, and then we go on into Acts, now it's different. Now you don't have to prove yourself worthy to sit at the feet of Gamaliel. You have to be any kind of a person willing to listen and learn. So how do you become nobility? How, do you, how are you noble-minded? Be willing to search the scriptures and listen. Not to a cult, not to some false teacher, but to God himself speaking through scripture as taught by people who love the scripture and are willing to learn themselves. So set at the feet meant to be a disciple. But Martha was distracted with all the preparations she had to make. So she came up to him and said, Lord, don't you care my sister left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. Now, if you took the conventional understanding of things, Martha was absolutely right. Because in the honor-shame culture, uh, serving a guest was the most important thing you could possibly do. And Mary wasn't doing it. She was sitting in his feet listening. But Luke is laying out something that he'll bring up later in Acts. In Acts 16, 14, it says this, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to the things, uh, to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The word akuo in the Greek, listen. 
So in Luke X, your status isn't determined by convention, but by whether you welcome and then listen. That's what makes you noble-minded. You welcome and you listen. Normally, we might think God's going to use certain kind of people. We don't know who God's going to use. Only God determines that. But we know what it looks like. Welcome and listen. Now, I want to commend a, a book, a helpful book, Kenneth Bailey, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he talks about this little story, and I thought I'd share it with you, because some others may be blessed by Bailey as, as I have. I have several of his books. But he talks about this Martha Mary narrative. Because frankly, it doesn't seem right. Martha has a good point. Because in an honor-shame society, first thing you got to do is serve the guest. Not go into some theological discussion. Well, let's see. I, I, I hope this is helpful to you. Let me just share some from Bailey. <clears throat> it says, in Luke 10, 38, Jesus enters the house of Martha. Luke says, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. In Acts, Paul describes himself as had been brought up the feet of Gamaliel. I already mentioned that to you. To sit at the feet of a rabbi meant that one was a disciple of a rabbi. Mary thus became a disciple of Rabbi Jesus. Martha, we are told, is distracted. That's the word he's translating from the Greek. Not burdened, but distracted, which is an unusual word to use because she really did have a duty to take care of the guests. To be distracted, says Bailey, one must be distracted from something by something. Clearly, Martha's distracted from the teaching of Jesus by her cooking. In the account, he continues, Martha then asked Jesus to send Mary to the kitchen to help her. The point is not Martha's need for someone to peel the potatoes. And then Bailey, by the way, is someone from the Middle East who really, really can open our eyes to a lot of the things that haven't even changed in 2,000 years. Here's what Bailey says. In our Middle Eastern cultural context, Martha is more naturally understood to be upset over the fact that her little sister is seated with a man and has become a disciple of Rabbi Jesus. Okay, so why is my little sister sitting there with these men and this Rabbi Jesus? What's this about? It's not difficult, says Bailey, to imagine what is going through Martha's mind. In all likelihood, she is thinking, this is disgraceful. What will happen to us? My sister has joined this band of men. What will the neighbors say? What will the family think? After this, who will marry her? This is too much to expect. In other words, she was shaming the whole family. There he was. And upsetting everything. But in Luke X, Jesus comes and everything does get upset. The conventions, the expectations, and so forth. Bailey continues, Jesus does not reply to her words, but to their meaning. In context, his answer communicates the following. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. I understand the entire list. This is his paraphrase. One thing is needed. What is missing is not one more plate of food, but rather for you to understand that I'm providing the meal, that is his words, and your sister has already chosen the good portion. The good portion wasn't better food, nicely served. It was the very words of God. 
Wow. And he continues in his paraphrase, I will not allow you to take it from her. A good student is more important to me than a good meal. Well, so then he goes on and talks about the word portion. Again, there's a double meaning. The word portion can mean a portion of food at a meal. Jesus is defending Mary's right to become his disciple and continue her theological studies. The traditional cultural separation between men and women no longer applies. So what that's saying in Luke 10 is, and this is continued all the way through Acts, God works through people who welcome Christ and his apostles and are willing to listen to his word. Lydia was somebody like that. And she became really the key person in Philippi that hosted the new church that God established there. And the word welcome is a key word. So I want to give one more case of that. Um, Luke 2.41, Luke 2.41 uses the word decomai or decomai with a prefix. I hear it, I think it's anodecomai. Acts 2.41. So then, those who, now the, says received, I don't know what yours says. Literally it says, those who welcomed his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. God adds people to the church. And he does so by sending out his messengers to preach his gospel and to call people to repentance for forgiveness of sins in uh, Luke Acts, especially in Acts chapter 1. Those who welcome the word are the ones added to the church who gladly receive it. So in Berea, many gladly received it after verifying it was true from the scripture in Thessalonica, there was a riot to get the messengers out of town. And then when they find out somebody received the word in Berea, they're going to try to stop that too. So the question that comes before us is are we going to be those who welcome or those who become angry that our conventions are being overturned. Luke 10, 41, 42 from the Net Bible. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried, troubled about many things, but one thing has needed, is needed. Mary has chosen the best part, and as Bailey pointed out, part there is portion. Could mean portion of a meal, but here it means the portion of God's teaching it was given to those who are hungry to learn it. It will not be taken away from her. Dear ones, if you hunger for the truth, if you welcome the truth, if you search the scriptures to see what's true, and let the scriptures disciple us so we learn and grow, you've chosen the better part. That's how you become a Berean. Now in our day, what we have uh, is a plethora of false teachers with massive megaphones, numbers of followers that the truth could hardly even think about having, and seductive messages that sound appealing to the unregenerate. Do we welcome that or do we welcome the truth? Now, it doesn't mean somebody that's small or, or unappealing is automatically true. Remember, they search the scriptures to see if these things are true. But when they say, I don't want to hear it, don't tell me I'm wrong. Don't tell me any Bible verses. Everybody's got their proof text. I got the power of God. And they prove it because they got a louder sound system and they shout. I remember going to those meetings, power. But... 
But what's the truth? What's the truth? Now, the journey is going to go to Athens. I, after I got this projected here, I realized it's not visible. I'll have to use a different source for my map next time. So here we have Thessalonica. Then they go to Berea. Probably, so they went, took him, Paul down to the sea. So most likely there, he's going to take the sea route down here to Athens. Corinth is over here. Athens is here. And here's that little area where they built in the 19th century a canal, finally. They tried to many times before, but they couldn't get it done. Still there. So, down to Athens. That's my geography lesson for today. And uh, let's go to Acts 17, 14, and 15. Then immediately... The brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So they decided it was too dangerous. The Thessalonians created all this tumult, uh, trying to stop the gospel, from taking root in Berea, but it did anyhow. And Paul, that caused Paul to go on down to Athens. And I'm telling you, and we'll study that, we're going to have a lot of interesting things to learn from Paul's uh, address to the Athenian philosophers. Now in Luke-Acts, Luke uses longer scenes of dialogue to help us learn. It's really amazing how Luke does this. I, I've been studying Luke X now for a couple decades. I can't get enough of it. I, I, it makes more sense all the time. He, Luke tells us what different people said, especially when the Holy Spirit came upon them, uh, like Simeon and uh, Zacharias and so on and early in Luke. And then Paul's long address in Acts 13. Peter's long address earlier in Acts. And this is how, and then the assumption is in the cases where there's a shorter narrative about a certain city, some of the same things were taught. He stayed there for a while. We know he spent a long time in Corinth. So immediately they sent him out as far as the sea. They went to Athens. They decided the situation was too dangerous. Go to Athens. Dr. Schnabel said it's unclear where he wanted his associates to join him. If Athens was the next objective Paul's missionary work, he would have asked them to join him there. If Athens was only a stopover and Corinth the next major center of missionary activity, he would have instructed them to travel to Corinth. It is in fact in Corinth that Silas and Timothy join him again. Luke, or Acts 18.5. Which does not prove, however, that Athens was not intended as a location for missionary work. So Paul is going to Athens and he ends up in a confrontation with philosophers that were well-schooled in Greek uh, philosophy. And the Greek language was a powerful tool. The philosophies there are well-known to historians. And what we're going to do next week is get into some of the interaction and the idolatry and the various philosophies and what Paul had to say to them. Now, I will say this for something for you to think about for next week. Many decades ago, I heard a famous charismatic teacher uh, who started a whole movement out on the West Coast claim that Paul failed in Athens and his failure caused him to change his program. And the failure was... Uh, 
that not very many people wanted to listen to him. So that is constituted according, by the way, the teacher was John Wimber who made this claim. And I was quite sure that was false back when I first heard it, but uh, Paul needed to do signs and wonders. In other words, debating issues fails. Doing signs and wonders succeeds. And that was the claim of a guy that started an entire movement out on the West Coast and then kind of went across the country. That was in the 70s. But I think uh, I'm going to present a different view. I don't think Luke is telling us that. See, the only meaning that matters is the meaning of the Holy Spirit-inspired author. Did Luke intend to tell us that Paul failed? Ask yourself that question as you read it. I don't think so. The failure wasn't Paul's failure. It was the failure of those to welcome the truth. And that's just in keeping all through Luke-Acts. Signs and wonders were done a lot of different places. And the issue wasn't whether there were signs. The issue is whether people would love the truth or not. In some case, the presence of mighty signs that didn't cause repentance was uh, indicating that it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sire, Tyre, you know, a lot of these places, trying to Sidon, Tyre, various places, places where messengers went, God did things. And signs and wonders didn't always create faith in Luke X, although sometimes people did believe. At issue is where you welcome the truth. So Jesus was preached in Athens. Paul preached the resurrection, which they mocked, and so on. So my thesis is this, and I think it's keeping with the text. This was God's intended place where Paul would go and demonstrate his ability to stand against the philosophies of the world, including the most prominent Greek ones, rebuke their idolatry, preach the truth, and God is glorified. Here's what I think Mr. Wimber missed. God is glorified when the truth is preached, whether it's received or rejected. Signs and wonders may or may not happen. And there's no evidence that the more signs, the more faith. Because there's many cases where it said, well, you still don't, won't believe. So many signs were done, they still didn't believe. That's not the point. The signs signify something. And if you don't preach the gospel, nobody knows what the sign signifies. At issue is welcoming the truth and welcoming God's messengers. And they didn't want to do that in Athens. So Paul went on to Corinth. And this is in keeping with what Jesus told the disciples earlier. Shake off the dust and go to the next one. It's not a sign of failure. <laughs> if you go out and many, God bless the evangelists that go out and preach on the street, you never fail if you tell the truth of Christ. You didn't fail. Don't feel bad because they don't like it. Some people will. What's the value of one person willing to listen? So we'll look at that. And what an interesting thing. I was in Greece once on that trip in 83 and saw the place where that all happened. And it's kind of interesting, still standing there. So that will be next week. Athens is filled with idols. You know what? America is filled with idols. Wow. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Pray for Eric as he shows us evidence for your 
resurrection and the truth of the gospel. And we pray that we could be those who be like Mary, that want to learn and want to hear and want to serve you by being your disciples, by your grace and power. Thank you, Lord, for helping us. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you upstairs.